fossil fans and dino lovers. Welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. Tim, how's it going? We're back at it again for another Dinosaur Podcast episode. Andrew, I'm doing really good, and I'm very excited about this episode. Uh, we have a guest on that I have been wanting and hoping to talk to for literally years now. Yeah, this is a world-renowned paleontologist, and I am super pumped for this episode. Today's guest is paleontologist and writer Dr. David Hone. Dr. Hone currently resides at the School of Biological and Chemical Sciences at Queen Mary University of London, where he serves as a reader in zoology. His research has focused on understanding the behavior and ecology of dinosaurs as a whole, with particular interest in carnivorous theropods and flying pterosaurs. In addition to his scientific research, Dr. Hone has also acted as a scientific consultant for various media and TV productions, and has written multiple popular science books on dinosaurs. Thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Thank you very much for having me on. First off, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? I've always been obsessed, frankly, for want of a better word, with, with animals of all kinds. Um, and so as soon as I could, I specialized in biology, and then I went to university and did a zoology degree in Bristol in the UK, followed that up by going to the Natural History Museum in London for a master's, then back to Bristol where I moved into paleontology. Um, and then I went to Munich and then I went to Beijing and then I went to Dublin and ended up back in London. Um, and yeah, now I have a, a job, as you say, at Queen Mary in the East End. Oh, just a um, few places and, then. Yeah, which, you know, which, which isn't that unusual these days, I don't think. And increasingly people kind of chasing academic jobs, it's kind of normal to move. Right, right. Certainly institute, but increasingly country. And again, in my case, even continent. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the uh, the hobbies I recently got into, and it's completely taken over my living room, is 3D printing. And online, you can actually oh <laughs> you can actually find uh, really great uh, scans and sculpts of various like dinosaur bones and fossils and skulls, which I'm, I'm currently obsessed with printing right now. And I understand you might have been among the first paleontologists to work on a 3d printed fossil yeah so so i suspect we may have been the very first <laughs> um unfortunately as with so many projects that happen like this we ran into problems and it all slowed up and then we never really finished it off and then other people went and did it but way back in it would have been 2005 2006 so this is a long time ago in mm -hmm. terms of 3d printing so i just moved to munich from bristol and we'd scanned a skull that I was working on, a odd little British reptile, which we just named called Phodonix, a group called the Rhynchosaurs, a very odd little group of kind of squat Triassic reptiles. Um, and basically, it was nearly in perfect condition, but some bits were broken off. Um, and we heard that, yeah, there was this company who could scan it really effectively and potentially move some of the bits around. Um, and so, yeah, we we took it to this engineering company. So it was a friend of mine who I have to admit whose name escapes me. This was a guy who was only in the university or only in the museum I was in for about three months, 12, 15 years ago. I'm afraid I can't remember. Um, but he'd come across some company who had said who wanted to do a bit of science as a bit of kind of like friendly help out the local researchers and had often to scan this thing. And I believe they were doing some bits for Ferrari's Formula One team when this was, you know, really kind of new technology. And they scanned this skull for us and did a 3D print of it. 
um, and then gave us the scan files. And what we were trying to do, which I think would have been really unique at the time, was mirror image the broken bit from the preserved bit, because obviously left and right side should be symmetrical, right. and then print it again with a with a restored, completed version. And then that was the thing that we really wanted to write up as a kind of exciting new thing you could do to repair fossils for display and things like this. And then we ran into all kinds of trouble because it was, you know, the earliest days mm -hmm. of this technology and the computer didn't like it and it just kind of collapsed on itself <laughs> and the people involved just got too busy. Right. And then three or four years later, someone went, we've done the first ever 3D print of a fossil and we fixed the brakes. I'm like... <laughs> did that five years ago <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, we're yeah. never going to get the credit for it yeah. um but there is i think i think there was like the in-house museum magazine does carry a little paragraph somewhere with a photo <laughs> so we we have got some evidence that we did it perfect there you go. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When Tim mentioned all these 3D printed dinosaurs, I started looking online and not only did I find actual 3D printed dinosaurs, but now increasingly people are making 3D printable dinosaur armor. You can get like a laser that you can mount on it or something <laughs> like that. So it's probably a little bit different than when you first started doing this. Yeah, but it's, it's amazing how that stuff gets around. I, I was in Mongolia recently and found in a toy store this, you know, really quite cheap, nasty T-Rex toy <laughs> carrying a minigun. And it's just like, come on, of all the animals that don't have the arm, yep. <laughs> this enormous machine gun. Right. That's awesome. Uh, so um, you mentioned you were in Mongolia and uh, mm. on, on your Twitter account, you mentioned animals you'd like to find in Twitter, which was like protoceratops and, and velociraptor and things like that. And what you expected to find were just protoceratops. Did, uh, did that prophecy kind of come true for you? So, sort of. So um, it turns out that the the place, the, the bits of Mongolia I was going into in the Southwest Gobi um, were not the areas that I'd originally thought we were visiting. And so the main site, which is a thing called the Dejokta Formation, which is the one which just produces, you know, 95% of what you find that's dinosaurian is protoceratops. Yeah. Um, we actually only ended up spending a day there. So I did find some protoceratops bits, as indeed all the people I was with did. Um, but when I dug on in China, on the, the Chinese side of the border, which, where the Dejoctorix formation also comes out, you, it's just protoceratops, protoceratops, protoceratops. <laughs> and so I nice. thought we were going to the same same general place, and we that's probably all we'd find. But actually, we spent a lot of time uh, in the Nemegd, which is a, a slightly younger formation and produces a lot more interesting things like Tarbosaurus, the big Tyrannosaur, mm. and Dinochirus, and, and some other cool stuff. Uh, we didn't find too much there either. Um, so I did find some Protoceratops bits, and I did find some other bits, but not perhaps as much as I was really hoping for. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I was looking up all the stuff you've been in uh, involved in online, and it's extensive, but um, I've seen that you've been involved in several field projects and excavations um, where you've uncovered and described several new dinosaur specimens, you know, including bones and footprints. And even from what I've seen, you've named several new dinosaurs. So that's a lot. Do you have a favorite discovery that you've had? Yeah. So, yeah. So I've named, oh God, about a dozen dinosaurs and then another four or five um, pterosaurs and other things. I should say I'm not exclusively me. Um, you know, you're usually working with a whole team of collaborators and I think right. I've only got one or two dinosaurs where I'm the, the first author. So I, you know, it, it, it's, it's dinosaur name hone and other people and everyone else. It's someone and other people. And I'm one of the other people. Gotcha. Um, probably the best thing I found in the field was a, um, 
small tyrannosaur in northwest China. Oh, wow. um, so there's this lovely, uh, really cool formation called Wusai Wan, uh, which is middle Jurassic in age. And the middle Jurassic is interesting because a lot of dinosaur groups were getting going at this time. But the fossil record is appalling, which means that almost any time you find some good middle Jurassic stuff anywhere, it's often something quite new or quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, so there's a very early Tyrannosaur, so one of the first members of the group that would go on to produce things like T-Rex um, called Guanlong. Guanlong at the time was known from only two specimens, and I found the third one, um, oh. which was which was pretty exciting. That, but. Equally annoying because at the time I thought I'd found something else, which <laughs> oh, I gotcha. thought was more interesting. <laughs> and it was a while because because this is what I think people often don't realize is uh, certainly digging in Asia. It's not like you see in the movies and documentaries where you find a fossil and you basically completely expose it on the hillside uh-huh. and you can see the whole skeleton and then you take it out. We don't do that in Asia. And so there's a whole bunch of bits of bones and we knew it was a theropod. We knew it was a carnivorous dinosaur and we can see some fingers and claws and ribs and vertebrae and some bits of skull and some other bits. But we just took a tormous block out of the hillside and sent it off to the lab. Oh, and wow. it was months, if not a couple of years, before they got it out. Mm-hmm. And so in that meantime, I'd just seen bits of it and was taking a punt at what I thought it was of having seen huh. not that much. And I thought I'd found something totally new and rather more interesting <laughs> and then when it came out is like oh by the way it was a tyrannosaur and i'm like on the one hand cool i found a tyrannosaur right, and it's right. only the third one we've ever found <laughs> on the other hand damn i really thought i'd found a new species and i hadn't yeah so you you mentioned uh tyrannosaurs earlier and one of the things mm. that you've done is uh you wrote the book the tyrannosaur chronicles which i really enjoyed it, i read it during Thank the you. Initial days of COVID lockdown. So my fiance had nowhere to go to escape me telling her everything (laughs) I was reading for the next two weeks. Um, But um, I've seen you do uh, you do quite a bit of Tyrannosaur um, uh, research or or books or or Mm. even like lectures on on YouTube. So uh, what kind of draws you to Tyrannosaurs to talk about them so much? Um, kind of an accident, really, uh, as, as I think an awful lot of things in science are. So when I was working in China, I was doing various things on carnivorous dinosaurs in general uh, and looking at diet and ecology, and tyrannosaurs mm-hmm. were obviously a part of that. And then, yeah, basically, um, a, a project my boss, a guy called Xu Xing, was involved in in northeast China. They turn up a big new tyrannosaur. He sat on it and sat on it and sat on it. And occasionally I'd bug him going, well, you're not doing that work, so let me do it. And he's like, nah, I've got a big tyrannosaur. I'm doing it. It's like, fair enough. It's, you know, <laughs> you're the boss. It's your specimen. And then one day he came around to my office and went, I'm never going to do it. Can you get it done? <laughs> um, and so, so that was it. And so I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to describe and name this thing with him and a, and a whole raft of colleagues. Um, and then, of course, you you become like Mr. Tyrannosaur, at least mm-hmm. for, a, for a few months, because this was the first new, like really big one for like 70, 80 years. So it, it was a big deal. Right. And even I, even being a paleontologist who liked doing outreach and knew what theropods were like, I didn't realize it was going to be a big deal as it was. <laughs> um, but also... Um, it set me off reading a lot more about them than I had before. And what actually really triggered things was when I later went to Canada on a a research trip rather than uh, being based out there, tyrannosaurs in general, and actually T-Rex in particular, has something rather unique going for it, which is really useful in my line of work, which is it's basically the only big carnivore out there uh, Mm -hmm. at the time that it was around. And so when you're trying to look for evidence of things like 
predation habit or evidence of scavenging or which things they favored or, or anything like this. If you're looking at something like the Morrison formations, this is a famous late Jurassic one in North America, you've got loads of Allosaurus, but then you've also got Ceratosaurus, and then you've got Marshosaurus, and then you've actually got four or five other similar sized in the grand scheme of things, carnivores, which are about the same size and fairly closely related to each other. Mm-hmm. So you find a bone with a chunk taken out of it, and you don't know who did it. And there's no easy way of working it out. Right. Whereas when you've got T-Rex, T-Rex is the only big carnivore. If you find a bone with a chunk bitten out of it, it was T-Rex. Mm-hmm. If you find a fossil coprolite, fossil poop with bones <laughs> in it, you know it was T-Rex. Right. Like, so everything is T-Rex. And uh, then that's really useful because you can build up a real pattern of that animal in a way that you can't for basically anything else. Um, and so that really started me off looking a lot more at tyrannosaurs because you had this confidence in your data that you couldn't get for almost any other animal. So Tim mentioned um, one of your books, Tyrannosaurus Chronicles, or Tyrannosaur Chronicles. Mm. Um, You also have one that you recently wrote called The Future of Dinosaurs. I think it's called How Fast Did T-Rex Run in some places as well. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about your books and where listeners might be able to find them? Sure. Um, so yeah, the Tyrannosaur Chronicles, uh, and it is Tyrannosaur Chronicles, not Tyrannosaurus, because actually I, I wanted to kind of tell the story oh, there you in go. the sense that, you know, we do know arguably more about T-Rex than any other any other dinosaur, but it has a history. And, uh, you know, I'm literally teaching the start of my evolution class to my uh, freshman students right now, like, like today. Um, and, you know, ev- everything has a past. You it's hard to understand T-Rex as an organism if you don't look back past the hundred million years of its history mm-hmm. and talk about what it was before and even what it what those first tyrannosaurs came from and how they got to where they were and what was going on and the the changes and all the influences. And I, and I wanted to really make that clear that, you, you know, paleontology and indeed all science, you know, doesn't work in a vacuum. You don't just look at T-Rex bones to understand T-Rex. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a T-Rex is absolutely the centerpiece of it because again, like I said, we know more about it than anything else. But we're looking at the whole group and all these other animals and what happened and what was going on. Um, and then yeah, with the future of dinosaurs slash yeah, as in North America, how fast did T-Rex run? I wanted to kind of write an anti-dinosaur book mm-hmm. in the sense that you know there's an infinite number of you know, particularly the kids' books, but even those for adults or, or for mixed audiences are kind of like either here's a whole bunch of animals right, right. or here's the state of play. You know, there's an almost infinite number of here's the new research from the last few years and this is what we know now that we didn't know three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about the stuff that not only do we not know, but we can't work out and we'll probably never know. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and there's really quite a lot of that. And and it's, again, I, the, the, the fear was, I'd, as I said, I'd write an almost literal anti-book with nothing in it. <laughs> the publishers were genuinely worried about that. Right. Like, Look, I'm not going to hand in 400 pages with no content. Right. Um, but it is that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the example I always give is islands. If you look at the world, not just today, but you know, at any point in evolutionary history where we've got fossil records of islands, islands are weird. They are absolutely places where evolution, not the rules go out the window, but because you're in an isolated place, right, right. 
there's limited competition. Whoever gets there first usually gets to do something mm -hmm. and can often end up doing everything. Right. You know, if you want weird animals, you want islands. Mm -hmm. And what you really want is volcanic islands. Ah. There's a reason that Hawaii is full of weird species. The Galapagos is full of weird species. New mm -hmm. Zealand is full of weird species. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a fossil, a volcanic island is about the worst possible place. <laughs> right. They, they don't have classic sedimentary deposits. They don't have lots of flowing rivers with lots of mud and lakes that settle slowly. Um, so that's your first problem. And then secondly, they're on, by definition, very active volcanic areas. There's a very good chance that they'll just either explode or, you know, get subducted and dragged under and, and pulled back into the Earth's core and, and melt. Right. Well, then we're probably not going to get any fossils from them. <laughs> You're probably not. <laughs> um, so you think dinosaurs are weird now. Dinosaurs were around for 160 million years mm -hmm. at a time of high volcanic activity. There would have been volcanic islands all over the world. God knows how many odd little weird groups of dinosaurs got onto these islands, radiated for three or four million years, turned up a whole bunch of oddities, and then exploded or sank never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, wow. And we're never going to find that. Right. If we find one ever and then find some bones from it, it will be, you know, absolutely incredible. Yeah. The idea that we'd get, you know, a real pattern is is it's it's just impossible it really is impossible and yet we know that that's where the weirdest coolest most fun and unusual and often interesting and actually quite important evolution goes on and we're just never going to see it yeah mm -hmm. and you know that's just one example but that's what the core of that book is supposed to be about what can you tell us about your your work on pterosaurs um, so that's kind of where I started. So for my master's project, I was actually doing dinosaur diversity because of a little project that came up. But when I was shopping around and then trying to get a PhD, I was offered this one on pterosaur origins. And as with so many PhDs, you know, I worked on it for three years. And the conclusion I came to at the end is, well, we're not sure, but it's probably what everyone said when I started three years ago. Um, but that got me started on them. They've been somewhere between kind of a third and half my research ever mm -hmm. since. So I've devoted a fair bit of time <laughs> to them over the years. And and pterosaurs are far less researched than dinosaurs. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's about seven or eight of us worldwide who do a fair amount of research on pterosaurs. You know, oh, this wow. is a <laughs> tiny subsection, maybe a dozen, but it's huh. it's small. Where there's, you know, there's 100, 150 people who work on dinosaurs. Still not a lot, but, you know, substantively more. Um, and yeah, they're they're really cool animals. Um, you know, the really big ones, which I've done a bit of work on, including naming one from Canada, you know, they had 10 meter plus wingspans. They probably mm -hmm. weighed two to 300 kilos. Um, that's absolutely absurd for a flying animal. <laughs> and, you know, you compare it to, you know, the largest flying birds, wandering albatross, kind of three meters wingspan, some of the largest extinct flying birds, which might have topped six meters. That's a massive bird, but that's still barely half what the pterosaurs right. got to. And so, you know, they are kind of leagues away. And, you know, it's one of my pet peeves that in, in general, you still got this kind of almost Victorian idea of, well, dinosaurs all went extinct, so they were failures. Right, you right. Know, they yeah. were only around for 160 million years. Mm. Only. You know, they were <laughs> rubbish. Um, and pterosaurs were exactly the same. And again, it's like, oh, well, they, you know, they must have been terrible animals to have only survived for 160 million years <laughs> with a worldwide distribution. Right, and reaching 10-meter right. wingspans, 
three and a half times what birds are capable of. Yeah. And in terms of mass, the heaviest flying birds right now top out, uh, I think it's eight kilos. And now I'm talking about 300 plus. So yeah, you know, pterosaurs <laughs> are rubbish and birds are great. Yeah. You can see why that sticks a little uh, when, when, you know, when you're told that when every time you read that. Um, yeah, they're, they're very cool animals in their own right. And while I love dinosaurs too, you know, pterosaurs shouldn't just be the thing in the background of your dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, they were the dominant flying animals for 160 million years, just like dinosaurs, global distribution in every environment, doing lots of interesting things everywhere they went. Um, and yeah, they were probably better flyers than birds, which is why they got as big as they did, because mechanically they can do it and birds couldn't. Interesting. Um, so yeah, very, very, very neat animals and and I think re annoyingly underappreciated. I agree. Gotcha. Yep. So lastly, if people are just loving our dinosaur-themed podcast and want to hear even more, you actually have a podcast of your own, correct? Could you tell us about that? I I, I do. So, so like absolutely everyone else, I started a podcast in lockdown, though unlike everyone else, it was planned before lockdown hit. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the friend that I do it with, uh, she's a comedian in the UK called Izzy Lawrence. And Izzy and I were old friends from years and years ago. When I was doing my PhD, she was an undergraduate and I met her then. And this is before everyone had a mobile phone, everyone had Facebook, everyone had an email account that they carried with them for life. So... I left and finished my PhD and you you just lose touch. Mm -hmm. And then randomly bumped into her at a friend's Christmas party <laughs> 15 years later. Uh, she was doing podcasts alongside still doing comedy stuff. She'd be doing her degree, but she was on the circuit already as a as a as a teenager during during her university days. Um, oh, I'm doing a couple of podcasts. We should get you on. We've got a history one. We can talk about the early history of paleontology or even just for fun. Oh, it's history and this week we're doing dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Three, four months later, COVID <laughs> hits. Um, all her gigs dry up. All her presenting dries up. Mm -hmm. She can't get in the studio for the people she was working with for, for a couple of other institutes started chatting online. Well, do you want to do a podcast now? Well, I'm not doing anything. You're right. not doing anything. Let's do a dinosaur podcast. And she had a real interest in them. So in the, in that regard, you know, she's she's the perfect co-host because she is a good presenter and a host, but she's she's the audience proxy. Right, she yeah. knows enough of the very basics that she knows what I should and shouldn't be talking about. And yeah, but explain that bit again. Well, I know we covered that a couple of weeks ago, but it, tell us that again because I can't quite remember. And so, of course, that's perfect really um and so that lines it along and certainly for the for the first few series uh we were able to get up really quite an amazing line of guests on uh all through her showbiz contacts uh whereas i contributed nothing to that whatsoever because all i know is other paleontologists and they already had me it's called terrible lizards which is um you know that that's the often incorrectly given trans translation of dinosaur is terrible lizard whereas it should really be translated as fearfully great reptile Ooh. but no one ever says that right. um and what, what we wanted to call it was talking with dinosaurs was a nice ah, yeah. pun on the classic yeah. bbc <laughs> only to discover that someone else had a podcast called that uh, which um, had run for about three episodes and then shut down about uh, five yeah. years earlier but we still do. thought well we shouldn't really do it um so yeah we went with we went with terrible lizards and it's been some other bits have, have made an appearance, but it's been probably 90 plus percent dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Mm. And we're recording at the moment season eight and there's eight episodes per, per season. So there's 
plus there's various bonus episodes and catch up and stuff. So there's probably the thick end of a hundred hours of content over the last two or so years. So wow. yeah, we've we've done it, it was a it was a COVID podcast, but it didn't die as one <laughs> and, and yeah, has carried on since. <laughs> Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. That was it was great to have you on. We definitely learned a lot. We're going to absolutely be checking out your books and podcast and can't wait to see where your research goes from here. Well, thank you again so yep. much for having me on. It was great to finally talk with you. No worries. All Cheers, right. guys. Thanks so much, Dr. Hone. What an exciting episode. I'm super excited to follow up with these books and this podcast and see what other cool discoveries we keep making on dinosaurs. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you again next time. The Paleo Podcast is produced by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Thanks for listening.